Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. On this episode of Most Notorious, J. Frank Norris, controversial Christian fundamentalist and accused 1920s murderer. And Norris went out to where this guy was, went out to the scene, and he found in the, in the car a half-broken bottle of liquor. And he brought that. It had. It actually had uh, brain tissue in the in the bottle. And he brought that back to the church the next Sunday, and put it on the pulpit and preached a message from that passage in Daniel, with the handwriting on the wall, "Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting." Uh, so I mean, that was the kind of graphic stuff that he did, um, that some people loved and other people found just had no place, you know, in church. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis. So before we get started, I have been thinking about redoing slash replacing or deleting the first 12 episodes of Most Notorious. Why? Because I used that silly gangster voice, which I thought would be entertaining. It was certainly entertaining for me. And I didn't think too much of it at the time because I didn't think that many people would listen to it. But things changed. And when I listen to them now, I I don't like them. (laughs) Not the interviews, not my guests, of course, but, but me and the way I talk. So I don't know yet how I will do this. I'll probably start by asking the original authors if they don't mind redoing them. If the author is unavailable, I may just delete the episode completely and do another interview on the same subject with a different author. So again, I'm not 100% sure how this will proceed, but it will take place over the next few months. And if you want to re-listen to those episodes again, for whatever reason, um, you may want to do it now because there is no telling when they might disappear. Oh, except on Patreon. They will live forever for patrons on patreon.com slash most notorious. Anyway, let's get on with the show. My guest today is David Stokes. He is a Wall Street Journal best-selling author, ordained minister, commentator, broadcaster, and columnist, and an author. Some of his titles include Camelot's Cousin, The Spy Who Betrayed Kennedy, Jack and Dick, When Kennedy Met Nixon, and Jake and Clara, Scandal, Politics, Hollywood, and Murder, 
And if you recognize that last book title, it might be because he was a guest on the show back in July of 2017. The book he is here to talk about today is called Apparent Danger, the pastor of America's first megachurch and the Texas murder trial of the decade in the 1920s. Great to have you. Great to be with you, Eric. So when and where did you first hear about this story? As a kid, um, it, it so happens that the pastor um, that was in question, and the story takes place in Texas, also had an affiliation with a church in the 30s and the 40s in Detroit, Michigan. And that happened to be the church where my grandparents and my mother, when she was a little girl, attended some. And so that was the connection there. And I heard about this story about this uh, minister, this preacher, who killed a guy, faced the death penalty. And so I started reading about it in college and then started gathering materials. I, I guess I spent about 20 years gathering materials for this book and finally pursued it uh, in earnest, uh, oh, I guess about 12 years ago, and just uh, released uh, an updated version here recently. Very cool. So if you don't mind, let's start with J. Frank Norris. Who was he? Where was he born? What were some of the childhood experiences that helped shape him? Yeah, he was born in Alabama, but at a young age, he and his family moved to uh, Texas, to the hill country of Texas, and a little place called Hubbard City is where they lived. And he had an alcoholic father, um, what was called back then a drunkard. They didn't use the the term alcoholic. This is in the late uh, 19th century going into the 20th century. And a very devout mother who uh, was the strongest by far influence on his life. Um, one of his defining moments was when he was a teenager. His father, because of his uh, struggle with alcohol, was always in trouble. And uh, some people showed up to collect some money off of him. And there was a fight and gunfire happened. And it just so happened that a stray bullet hit a young uh, John Franklin or J. Frank Norris. And he nearly died. It became sort of a defining moment as he was nursed back to health uh, by his mother and soon set his eyes on something that had been her dream for him, and that is to be a preacher, to be a minister. Did he have a come-to-Jesus moment yeah. as a boy? Yeah, he did. He had a conversion moment, uh, a revival uh, in his church in Hubbard City, and uh, he really became sort of a protege of a local pastor who eventually sent him and helped him find the money to go to um Baylor University in Waco. Baylor, of course, was begun as a as a Baptist training ground for ministers. It is so much more now, even uh, national champs, I guess, in basketball or uh, near that. But uh, they were um, back at that time, around the turn of the 20th century, 1900, 1901. Uh, it was a training ground for most Baptist ministers, particularly the Southern Baptist Convention at the time. Tell us about the Baptist Church, if you could, at the turn of the 20th century, and how it compares to the Baptist Church of today. Well, that's interesting. There were a lot of struggles going on. Of course, some of the big things in the later part of the 19th century uh, were the rise of um, theological changes in, 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 in Baptist life, and also, for instance, the rise of evolutionary thought. So people were moving away from creationism. It became a big struggle. So the, there was that divide in among Baptists between the more liberal elements and the more conservative elements. Uh, just like you see now among major denominations, the, the issues may be different, uh, but the, the dynamics in, in many senses are the same. And uh, Norris uh, was part of the conservative group. Eventually, they became known as fundamentalist. It was a word that really came to be uh, around World War One, uh, but the idea of being a fundamentalist, not only in mindset, but there were certain fundamentals they believed that you had to believe and you had to be dogmatic about in order to be a, an authentic Christian, and certainly a Baptist, an authentic Baptist. And so uh, he was pretty strict uh, in his uh, in his thinking, and uh, very authoritarian in his approach, as he even trained. You know, when he was at uh, Baylor, he even helped get the president of Baylor University fired. Uh, they had smuggled a dog into chapel service, and the dog was yelping. 
and the uh, the president became so mad he threw the dog out the window, but it was the second floor and the dog died. And uh, Norris led a student revolt that eventually the trustees of the college fired uh, uh, fired the president. Norris uh, early on developed a, a desire to be a rabble rouser. He loved to create controversy and be in the center of it. And that followed him for the rest of his life until he died in 1952. You, you write in your book that as a theology student, he did have a bit of a cruel streak. Yeah, he did, which which some people may think, well, that's an odd thing because you're supposed to be a Christian. But he did. He had a, he had a cruel streak, a mean streak. You know, as I, as I studied about him, and of course I have a background in the ministry too, you wonder if this guy was a, a bad man who did a few good things or if he was a, a, a good man who did some bad things. And I think it's really hard to, to figure out. I've described him before as a cross between, uh, between Billy Sunday, we might say Billy Graham now, that'd be a name more familiar, and P.T. Barnum uh, with a little Al Capone thrown in. And that sort of gives you an idea of what this uh, what this uh, parson, what this preacher, this minister was like. Yeah. So I am a big fan of my fellow native Minnesotan author, Sinclair Lewis, who wrote one of my favorite books, which has a connection to this story, Elmer Gantry. Yeah, Elmer Gantry. Actually, when Lewis was researching that book, he made a special trip to Fort Worth, Texas, where Norris was the pastor of the First Baptist Church. This is in the middle 1920s. And he actually, Lewis, attended a service at First Baptist, and he he told the newspaper, a local paper, that he'd never before seen as many people at church at one time as he did that day. And he talked about Norris's energy. And so Norris became one of the prototypes, one of the, one of the models he studied uh, for the character that he created in his novel, uh, Elmer Gantry, and also that became in the movie with Burt Lancaster some years later. So there was a connection between uh, Norris and Sinclair Lewis. So he gets married and becomes the son-in-law of a pretty wealthy man, right? right. Yes, exactly, yes. Uh, he, he marries um, and he is son-in-law of a wealthy person who's also very much involved in the Southern Baptist Convention. So it's a real ladder climb for Norris. And uh, the father-in-law dies uh, of, under mysterious circumstances. He falls off the back of a train. And the, the only other person witness to it was his son-in-law. And there were already rumors at the time that he may have pushed him because the son-in-law inherited a great deal of money. Now, this is after he's done with college and he's beginning his ministerial career. And the money enabled him to buy the controlling shares of a major periodical, a newspaper at the time called the Texas Baptist Standard, uh, which was published up until the last few years. And, um, and it was a major periodical, and he became... Uh, the editor of it, and he used it to to make a name for himself. But the money that he used to buy those shares came from money that he inherited. It's never been proven at all, you know, whether he was involved or whether it was just a tragic accident uh, for his father-in-law to to die on the back of a train. But uh, in later years, after some other scandals came out, including uh, Norris shooting a person, which is the uh, focus of the book, many people wanted to revisit that. And I think it's been revisited a little bit now in a book that's forthcoming by a former pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, a man by the name of O.S. Hawkins. But I haven't seen that book yet, so I'll look forward to reading that. So it's around this point that as the editor of the Baptist Standard, he starts to insert himself into local politics, right? Yeah, yeah he does. Uh, a big thing in, in Texas at the time was racetrack gambling. And of course, you know, gambling it was you know very popular today, but it was always regarded as a vice, and certainly more conservative uh, clergymen preached against it. Uh, and uh, so he took the lead of a movement. There were two things that were happening, and they were by interestingly they were known as progressive causes. And one is prohibition, and the other is to a lesser extent this gambling law in Texas. 
but he led the fight um, and uh, got uh, racetrack gambling banned in the state of Texas uh, for decades. It didn't come back until the 1940s or so. And so he got a taste for the public fight, the big dispute, uh, what, what later the moral majority and some of the other crusading groups of Christian people, the so-called Christian right, he was really doing that uh, decades before. He was the, the ancestor and the father of most of that in this country. So how does he get the job as, as pastor of Fort Wayne's First Baptist Church? Well, he uh, he wound up giving up ownership of the Baptist Standard, was sort of pressured out, and he didn't know exactly what to do. Uh, and he was invited to speak at First Baptist Church in downtown Fort Worth, Texas, which at the time was known as the Church of the Cattle Kings. It was it had more millionaires uh, in, the, in the congregation, any church in the country. And they liked what they heard, and uh, they invited him back and back. And finally, they called him as their pastor. And he immediately became uh, a high profile. The two first Baptists, the one in Dallas, Texas, and the one in Fort Worth, uh, were the were the just the giant churches in the in the Southern Baptist Convention. And he built uh, First Baptist into in Fort Worth into a mega church uh, of thousands upon thousands of people before that term was coined. Uh, but he also became, interestingly enough, the highest paid minister in the country when he became pastor of the First Baptist Church in Fort Worth. So it was a very prestigious pulpit, uh, a lot of uh, the wealthy, powerful people in and around the city of the Fort Worth were, were members of the church, but that didn't last very long. So you write in your book that in the first couple of years as pastor of this church, he gave pretty standard sermons. But then he came to a very deliberate decision to start giving what you call sensationalized sermons. What are sensationalized sermons, and why did he decide to do that? He became what, what could be best described as a ministerial populist. In other words, uh, he was conservative in his theology, but that wasn't nearly as important as uh, reaching the masses and drawing a crowd. And so he would use any means. He, he, he coined a, a, a phrase, the message doesn't change, but the methods do. And he used all sorts of methods to draw crowds to his church. I mean, he one time uh, put a big sign up. Uh, this is around 1911, 1912. Uh, put a big sign up in town, uh, you know, the 10 biggest devils in Fort Worth, you know, names given this Sunday night, First Baptist Church, here J. Frank Norris. Another time uh, he put, what prominent banker in Fort Worth is buying silk stockings for another man's wife? Here J. Frank Norris, Sunday night. And he would somehow leverage those odd titles and those uh, uh, unusual uh, subjects into a mainstream message eventually, an old fire and brimstone kind of message. And uh, he became very popular with an element of the, the culture that uh, was not uh, wealthy. Uh, it was the other side of the tracks. And of course, this caused all sorts of difficulties for him with the power structure of the church. And so instead of bowing to them, he, he, he basically fought them and ran them out in his church at one time. I mean, when he went there, less than a thousand people, and he lost about 600 people in the course of a few months, and most ministers wouldn't have been able to survive that. But then he leveraged that to start bringing in all sorts of the, you know, the is uh, just all sorts of people from Hell's Half Acre, which was the the seedy part of Fort Worth, very famous in that era, prostitution and gambling and and alcohol and so forth. And and he had that kind of ministry, I guess, if you could call it reaching the down and outers, and he reached them with great effectiveness and by the thousands. He did do some really P.T. Barnaby <laughs> type things. <laughs> um, didn't he, among other things, fill a giant tub with rattlesnakes one Sunday? Yeah, rattlesnakes. One time he did apples, and, and he brought in a thing of apples, and he talked about Christy Matheson, who was a great pitcher at the time, and he started flinging apples out to the people in the crowd. Yeah, he did all kinds of things. One time, he, 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 uh, a cowboy got 
got converted and wanted to be baptized, but he wanted his, his horse to go with him. So Norris had the horse and the baptistry along with the, the cowboy, that kind of stuff. I mean, very sensational. He did it on purpose. He did it to, to uh, he was an opportunist. He was a populist. Uh, you know, was he doing it from good motives or not? I mean, he probably did help a lot of people. There were a lot of people who, who got off alcohol and quit uh, destroying their lives. And, you know, families were, were saved and reunited and so forth. But uh, at what price, I guess some would suggest and ask. Right. So when did he start developing ties to the Ku Klux Klan? Well, the Ku Klux Klan sort of grew uh, in America in the, in the aftermath of the, uh, the Great War, World War I, what we know as. And it was, it was an anti-immigrant kind of thing. It was also something that was uh, hard set against cultural change. Um, and so in the early 20s, it became very popular. Uh, and it was anti-immigrant, uh, anti-Jewish, uh, certainly anti-Black, uh, African-American, but it was also anti-Catholic, and that was one of the strongest draws to Norris. Norris believed that Catholicism was the great menace in the country. He, he really, he was paranoid about that. And you got to remember, it was till 1928 when we had a Catholic who ran for the presidency, Al Smith, and, you know, the rumors were floating around that if he had been elected, the Pope was going to be living in the White House and all this. There was a lot of paranoia in this country. But the Klan, uh, he became very involved with it. Uh, he even let the Klan hold meetings in his church auditorium, and uh, he very, very chummy with them. And uh, hired people on his staff, the, the Grand Dragon at one point in the mid-20s of the local chapter of the, of the Ku Klux Klan was on Norris's payroll at the church, one of the associate pastors of the church. And so uh, that's a very sordid uh, uh, period of time in the country. Um, but the Klan was, uh, and fundamentalism, American fundamentalism, and a lot of... Um, a lot of people who consider themselves conservative Christians don't like to think about this, but there was a, a real connection back then at least. It was eventually, I think, repudiated, although I'm not so sure uh, as effectively as it should have been. But there was a tremendous connection between fundamentalism and the Ku Klux Klan. They, in fact, the Klan people recruited heavily out of fundamentalist ranks, and they uh, it wouldn't be unusual for a church especially in the South or some places in the North, places like Michigan, Indiana, where there was a strong um, anti-immigrant feeling, uh, would, would have a great percentage of the men, particularly in the pews, who were also members of the Ku Klux Klan. And we will return momentarily. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. 
There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Back again. So while serving as pastor of the First Baptist Church, he suddenly has to deal with a series of fires, both to the church and to his own personal residence. Right. Yeah, he, uh, he, he's involved in fights with the city. He's involved with uh, arguments with the mayor of the town. And, and, of course, he's trying to close down Hell's Half Anchor, uh, you know, the, the booze places and the gambling dens. And he's the crusading kind of uh, parson. And in doing this, he obviously makes some enemies. And his church, uh, there were a couple of fires, but one of them larger than the other destroyed the, the, the old Gothic First Baptist Church. But there were some people who felt that the fires were suspicious. Uh, were they set by Norris's enemies or was something else at play? And so powerful was that feeling in the town that J. Frank Norris was uh, indicted for arson and for perjury uh, for lying about it under oath before the grand jury and was brought to a very, very famous trial. Uh, and this, in fact, there were a series of trials. Uh, he was acquitted on all points. That just helped increase his legend among the common folk, you know, who saw him as a folk hero. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he was indicted for perjury and arson, and there are many people that believed he burned his own buildings down. And And I got to tell you, I've gone through the evidence. I've gone through the court records. I've gone through all of it. Uh, I think there's a pretty good case to be made that Norris burned his own church down in order to create sympathy for himself. Oh, I was going to ask you what the motive would have been, like to collect the insurance money or to clear the way for a bigger church, but it was to build sympathy. Well, and also to build a bigger church. He, uh, When he took First Baptist Church, it had been built by a famous pastor who predated him, and everybody, and there was a big portrait of this guy that hung in the Baptist tree, and, and um, Norris hated it. You know, he, he felt it took away from him. He was a strong egotist. And so he was able to, once the building burned, build a new building and design it the way he wanted it to be, and certainly bigger and better. Uh, and uh, and he did so. And so that uh, the, the, those are usually the motives ascribed to him, uh, and also to make a name for himself. So who were his enemies during this time? Well, there definitely the people who were uh, the liquor interest. For instance, this is pre-prohibition. And remember, Prohibition became the law of the land in 1920, so there was a big movement. 
and it was controversial. But uh, the liquor interest, uh, the uh, the underworld, as it was in in Fort Worth and in surrounding areas, I mean, this this guy was uh, he was a troublemaker to them. He 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 wanted to close them down, and uh, so it, it's not unusual for them to push back and and uh, to do things and to threaten to do things. And I certainly think there was an element of that. Um, he had a lot of enemies that of people who had, he had run out of his church. Some of the wealthy, remember, he he lost a lot of the wealthy and powerful people. Uh, society's uh, upper crust when he started bringing in, you know, the people on the other side of the tracks. And uh, they didn't go quietly, and many of those people became his long, long extended enemies. Uh, and so there, there were a number of factors at play there. So he was bringing into his congregation people who were less affluent, as you just stated. That must have hit his pocketbook. Who was paying his salary, and how was he generating money? Well, that's a very, very good question. I mean, he he did have some wealthy friends who who stayed with him, but uh, I mean, the way he just ran his church was instead of having it, you know, controlled by a, a small group of people who were wealthy and powerful, you know, rather than get a lot of money from a few people, get a little money from a lot of people. He always struggled with money throughout his um, career, but always seemed to find what he needed. Uh, he was uh, certainly um, a bit of a huckster. He was someone who could uh, who could charm people, and um, you know, not not unlike the televangelists that you would see today and in yesteryear. You know, people would you know gladly give him money and support him. And sometimes some of the poor elements are much more prone to do that than some of the wealthy people. So when the 1920s roll around, prohibition is something that is just basically handed to him on a silver platter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was tailor-made for him, and, and he exploited it. And uh, he, by that time, he had, an, he had established another paper, uh, he, you know, what he'd learned being at the Baptist Standard, his own paper called The Searchlight. And The Searchlight uh, dealt with uh, prohibition stuff and published his sermons and just all, all sorts of sensational things. And so, but yeah, he was, and he would, he would preach sermons. He, he, uh, one famous one, there was somebody, somebody powerful in town. He was out to get him and, and he would preach against, uh, Norris preached against this guy. And this guy was out someplace outside Fort Worth. And he was in a terrible automobile accident. And he was there with a woman, not his wife. And Norris went out to where this guy was, went out to the scene, and he found in the in the car a half broken bottle of liquor, and he brought that. It had it actually had uh, brain tissue in the in the bottle, and he brought that back to the church the next Sunday, and put it on the pulpit and preached a message from that passage in Daniel, with the handwriting on the wall, "Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting." Uh, so, I mean, that was the kind of graphic stuff that he did um, that some people loved and other people found just had no place, you know, in church. So not only did he have this massive congregation, this newspaper, the searchlight, but he also took advantage of a brand new means of communication, the radio, Correct. Yeah, he was one of the pioneers of uh, Christian broadcasting. Long lost now. People won't even find him in a footnote of the history. But he, he owned his own radio station that broadcasted out of First Baptist Church. And uh, all of his sermons, in fact, his sermons were broadcast live uh, until he died in 1952. And so, yeah, that was tailor-made for him. And he was effective. Eventually, he had a radio network that covered most of the southwest of the United States, uh, Oklahoma and Kansas and and Texas and New Mexico and Louisiana, and uh, people, he became a star, you know, a media star such as it was. And this was in the day and age before radio was was regulated. There was no uh, federal communication uh, company, corporation, no no FCC, until uh, Hoover was the president, and Hoover was elected in 1928. So that didn't happen. So there were no rules about what could be said, what couldn't be said, it was a wild, wild west <laughs> kind of thing on the radio all the time, and 
and he didn't he didn't fear being sued or or whatever. He just he went after and he used his radio station as he did famously in the story of its central to the book uh, to call out by name people in town and uh, criticize his enemies, you know, and those who were against him and uh, those he felt like uh, didn't have uh, the country's best interest or the town's best interest. And that gave him a, a megaphone, quite honestly, uh, more than a paper which had to be subscribed to. This thing just went for free across the airwaves across the country. So throughout his career in Fort Worth, he had constant battles with people in political power from his time at the Baptist Standard into the 1920s. And he did not mind sharing his feelings about the role of pastors in politics, or at least his, his role in politics. Yeah, he was really one of the first uh, American ministers who used the power of his pulpit uh, and his influence to endorse candidates, which he did regularly uh, beginning in the early 20s. And, uh, and he'd have them in to speak and he'd endorse them. Uh, of course, they were candidates who reflected his, uh, his particular philosophy. And he would also use his powers to resist. And, and one of the people that he resisted was a person who was the mayor of Fort Worth in the mid-20s, H.C. Meacham, who owned a, uh, a, a large department store in Fort Worth. Uh, one of the airports in Fort Worth is named for him to this day, Meacham Field. And um, he, uh, Meacham, uh, was a person who who criticized Norris, and Norris criticized him. And the city hired a city manager who looked into the tax laws and noticed that the First Baptist Church in Fort Worth not only had a church building, but they owned most of the other blocks around it. They are very prosperous. And then they'd lease their buildings out to local businesses, the local J.C. Penney's, for instance, in Fort Worth in the mid-1920s, uh, was in a building and they leased it from First Baptist Church. Problem was, because they were tax exempt, they weren't paying taxes. Now today, it's commonplace for churches that own properties and lease them for non-religious purposes, pay taxes on that money. It's a given. But back then it didn't happen, and they sent Norris a tax bill, and all hell broke loose. He he declared war on City Hall, and uh, and it went it went uh, into a full firestorm before it was over. Meacham must have been furious that Norris was leasing his buildings to a competing department store. Yeah, and there there was that factor too, uh, and so that played into it, and. And so Norris dug up some dirt about Meacham, and he published it all. Meacham had had an affair with one of his employees, and this is just unseemly stuff. But Norris broadcasted all over the radio, said he's not fit to be mayor of a hog pen, you know, uh, and this is all going out to the public. And so Meacham and some of his close friends, at a, at, there was a, a, a famous, it's still there in Fort Worth, I've been to it, uh, the Fort Worth Club, which was a, a private city club for all the movers and shakers in town, uh, that the, a group of men there, including uh, uh, Eamon Carter, who, uh, who uh, later helped to, to just grow Fort Worth uh, exponentially, uh, they, um, they, they decided to they had to do something about this preacher, try to get rid of him, try to run him out of town, uh, try to silence him. And of course, that just Norris just doubled down when that happened. So there is this absolutely fascinating scene in your book where Meacham, uh, who has a heart condition and is not the most confrontational person in the world, uh, he, he's sort of hiding in his office and he gets word that there are newspaper boys <laughs> hawking the <laughs> searchlight in his store. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he said he, he asked his store manager get those boys out of there. And, and then he overreacted. He, he, he played something right into Norris's hands. He asked his store manager if any of his employees of the store were members of Norris's church. And they found uh, half a dozen, nine, I think, and they fired them all. Or, or they called him in and said, either you leave that church or you leave your job. Which, can you imagine someone doing that today? It may be unconstitutional. But they wound up firing these employees simply because they were members of Norris's church and wouldn't repudiate 
their church and their pastor. Well, Norris seized the moment. He bring, he brought them on the platform the next Sunday and interviewed them and held a trial of sorts and published it in his newspaper. And that just, uh, it didn't reflect well on the mayor. Uh, he, sh he shouldn't have taken that bait, but it continued to escalate things. This is in the summer of 1926. Uh, this is in the month of July of 1926. And Norris, by this time, is the largest uh, religious leader in the country. Uh, William Jennings Bryan had died a year before. He was a contemporary of Norris, by the way, and a friend of Norris had spoken at Norris's church. And uh, Bryan uh, died right after the Scopes trial in Tennessee. He was the leading fundamentalist. Norris decided he was going to be the heir of all things fundamentalist to William Jennings Bryan. And he was doing that around the country, traveling around and then dealing with this local problem in Fort Worth where the mayor was against him and, and firing his employees. And it was a hot summer and things were about to heat up even more uh, when it came to local politics in Fort Worth in July of 1926. Right, right. And Norris made a big deal over the fact that Meacham's manager, who was Catholic, yep. had fired these Baptist members of the church. Yep. And he just, uh, he exploited it. And, um, you know, he brought them up to the platform, the Meacham Six, you know, and, uh, and interviewed them. And, of course, this is fed, it just increased his popularity with the, uh, the, the populist element. Uh, the element that need a hero. You know, I, I don't know. I don't want to go too political on this, but but his people now, back then, would have been the kind of people storming the Capitol on January sixth. Uh, and in, in many ways, I I saw so many parallels between Donald Trump and some of his personality quirks and a guy like Norris, uh, similar kind of thing, and a very strong ego and a very, very strong populist movement. And, uh, you know, that, that is attractive to a certain element of the population. So a man named Dexter Chips enters the scene. He was a friend and colleague of Mayor Meacham. Right. He was a, a lumberman. Uh, he was uh, somewhat wealthy. He was a member of the Fort Worth Club. He was a, a friend of Meacham. Uh, and he was someone who would do anything to help his friend and uh, decided that he would take it into his own hands to, to confront Norris himself and get him to, to just stop talking about the mayor and just to back off. And uh, so he paid a visit on him uh, on, a Sunday, on, a, on a Saturday in July of 1926. Uh, first he called up, said he was coming over, um, and he paid a visit on him and they argued in the office. And, uh, what happened next has been shrouded in controversy and, uh, it's always part of a court record, but he left, he turned to leave. Uh, and before he got out the door, whether he turned to come back or not, uh, that was never proven, but Norris reached into the desk, pulled out what he called the night watchman's gun and fired several shots, and uh, D.E. Chips, Dexter Elliott Chips, the lumberman, uh, fell to the floor and eventually died there in the office uh, after an argument with J. Frank Norris about his Sunday sermons. His mind, can you imagine, Eric, what would happen if a mega, if Joel Olstein, of course he'd never do it, he's not that kind of person, but if Joel Olstein shot and killed a man, how big a news item that would be yeah. in America. I mean, my goodness. And it was. as the, In the radio and New York Times front page, I mean, it was a big story in 1926, but that's what happened. And then came arrest and indictment and eventually uh, trial. Yeah. I mean, there, there has always been such a fascination for us as Americans with clergymen who sin, right? Yeah. Right, They're supposed right. to be held to higher standards. Well, and they should, they should be. I mean, and, and we should be. And that's, there's not, it's not appropriate. It's, it's not inappropriate to say that at all. Uh, and people also, um, there's something about hypocrisy, you know, um, 
Um, and uh, Norris uh, was never popular after that. I mean, he was still popular with his own element, but any any hope he had about being, I mean, uh, there were thoughts that he, he might one, run one day for the governor of Texas. Uh, and that might have been one of his ambitions. I mean, it wasn't wasn't impossible to consider that possibility until he shot and killed D.E. Chips in his office. Now, he said it was self-defense, and that was going to be his argument. Did, didn't Chips, well, according to Norris and his friends, who were the only witnesses, but, but didn't they claim that Chips had threatened Norris with his life? That's what they said. There's no, there's no evidence, and he also, um, uh, he didn't have a gun. Although Norris, for for years afterwards, was convinced that he had a gun and that somebody stole the gun, the police or whatever. Uh, it was a gun that had been there. Uh, but he turned, and there was also something in Texas at the time called the hip pocket move, where uh, you could, if you put your hand in your pocket like you're going for a gun. That was enough uh, justification. That's where the title of the book comes from, Eric. Apparent danger. You know, there's eminent danger, but apparent danger is a different legal doctrine. And that uh, entitles a person, or at least it did, where they apparently felt they were in danger or or apparent danger, they would be justified in in shooting someone. Uh, Whether that was the case in Norris's case, uh, you know, was a matter for trial and I still debated by those who who know the story to this day. Back again after a brief break. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie, and we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser-known figures, for instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. And we have returned. So what did Mayor Meacham do? How did he handle this? Oh, he was he was so devastated. First of all, he paid for all the funeral expenses for his friend. Uh, he mourned him. And then he used his political power to ensure that Norris would would be coming up before a grand jury, and he did very quickly. He was indicted, but even to sweeten the pot, Mayor Meacham uh, actually, out of his own pocket, hired special prosecutors uh, to help the prosecutors in Tarrant County, uh, Fort Worth. And so he hired special prosecutors, some of the biggest, most expensive lawyers of the day, uh, and uh, he hired these lawyers to help prosecute the case. He wasn't going to let this guy away. And Norris was charged with, with first-degree murder, uh, and that was the only charge. He went for all or nothing at all. Uh, first-degree murder, which, of course, implied premeditation. They tried to prove that at the trial. Uh, they had The trial was scheduled to begin in November. This, this murder took, or the shooting took place in July. And in early November, uh, the trial was scheduled to begin, and um, they were surprised, the prosecution was surprised, because the defense decided to move to have a change of venue, uh, because they felt like Norris couldn't get a fair trial in Fort Worth. And so um, this was debated for several days, and eventually the judge ruled that the venue could be changed. And the trial was set then for Austin, for Travis County, in Austin, Texas, the state capital, uh, for the following January. And all eyes of the country were then on Austin, Texas, as uh, a new governor by the name of Dan Moody was being inaugurated. And the sensational J. Frank Norris murder trial was taking place. Now, this is the 1920s, right? You think of the 1920s of famous trials, Sacco and Vanzetti. Uh, Leopold in Loeb, 
You've dealt with some of these in your excellent podcast that I listen to uh, when I exercise, which is not nearly enough. And, uh, and, and of course, you have the, 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 the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee. Uh, you have the Clara uh, Smith-Clara Heyman Trial in 1921. Uh, I wrote a book about that, and, and you did a podcast about that a few years ago with, with me. Um, and so this was, this was a time of great courtroom trials. The, one of those that's forgotten was one of the biggest ones, and that was the Norris Trial in January of 1927 in Austin, Texas. So Norris claimed that he had no idea who Dexter Chips was. How did prosecutors formulate a strategy around first-degree murder when on the surface it didn't appear that there was any real connection between the two men? Well, they, they did their best to establish a connection between the two, and that is that Norris actually was aware of this man, knew him by name, knew him by sight. Chips was a himself a rather colorful fellow. He lived at, at uh, the Westbrook Hotel, which is no longer in Fort Worth. It was one of the big hotels during the oil boom and just a block or two blocks from the church. And um, he, uh, he was a, a person who was estranged for a while from his wife and his uh, son. He liked alcohol, even though it wasn't legal to buy it. And when he drank, he, he could become rowdy. He was kicked out of uh, one hotel uh, and told never to come back. That was the Hotel Texas which is a footnote, by the way, is the last place President Kennedy and uh, spent the night before he died tragically the next day in Dallas. Um, but uh, Chips was uh, known well to the police, so they, they made they tried their best to make the case that Norris did know who he was and uh, knew that he had been threatened and was prepared uh, to counter that if that man should come to his office. So what kind of defense team was Norris able to hire? Well, Norris hired some some brilliant guys. Uh, uh, he hired uh, a lawyer by the name of uh, Moses, and he hired another one by the name of, of Dayton. And these uh, these lawyers were were very well. What's interesting is the the lawyers that were hired by Meacham to prosecute were better defense lawyers. One of them had been on that Clara Heyman case back in 1921, uh, Wild uh, Bill McLean, they called him. But um, the, lawyer, the lawyers that Norris hired were also known better as prosecutors. And so it made for an interesting, uh, interesting turn of events, you know, for the trial. But both sides were represented with the highest powered lawyers you could possibly have at the time, certainly in that part of the country. So what were some of the highlights of the trial for you? Well, you had an, 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 uh, you had uh, Marvin Simpson was one of Norris's lawyers. Dayton Moses was another one. And, um, you know, the, the, other, the, the prosecution had to prove that Norris uh, was doing this premeditated. They had to get the right kind of jury together, spent a lot of time in jury selection. And then when they got the jury together that they wanted, um, they went to trial, and uh, they they really thought that they had him. They brought a witness, uh, a, a lady that came forward. She was in her seventies. Uh, her name was Parker, and uh, she had uh, supposedly come to see Norris on the day of the shooting about some property. Her husband, her owned some property at some other part of Texas that. They wanted to sell, and they thought Norris was looking for some land for a, a camp for kids. And so they came to see Norris. She did. And uh, she left, and apparently by the timeline, she left the office just about a minute or two before D.E. Chips came into Norris's office. But she remembers the man coming in, and she remembers what the man was agitated. She, she, she testified about hearing uh, certain things happen. And the prosecution thought that with this with this lady testifying, that they they pretty much had a slam dunk, and they after they put this lady on the stand and then she was cross uh, cross examined, uh, they basically uh, rested their case. Now you also have to know this is this is by up to that time, 
the largest coverage of national media of a trial up to that time. It's been growing throughout the 20s. Newspapers sending people to these trials, you know, the one in Tennessee with the, with the scopes being a, a case a, a year before, year and a half before. But there are people from all over the country filing reports hour by hour, getting out through the UPI, through Associated Press, uh, through the Hearst Syndicate and others, getting information about this trial around the country. And after that prosecution rested, uh, Norris began his defense, and um, they just uh, tried to take it apart piece by piece and create sympathy for Norris uh, for the crowd, and eventually Norris himself testified. What was that testimony like? Well, it was very emotional for him, and, and you know whether this was contrived or whether it was how he really felt, he wept a lot, he cried a lot, he regretted that he had to do it, but you know, he insisted it was self-defense. And uh, you can, when you read the newspaper accounts and you read the trial transcripts and you read the coverage, you, you can see where his argument is beginning to wear down the sentiment. What what would seem like, I mean, when, when, when you go into this story and you see this unarmed man is shot to death in a pastor's office, He's not armed. He's shot to death. He, he dies there. Nobody even goes over to help him while he's lying on the floor. This is in a church. And, and you think, this is a slam dunk. This guy's going to jail. And by the time you get into the trial and into the testimony, even uh, the lawyers that, that Meacham, Mayor Meacham had hired, began to realize that they weren't going to win this thing. Uh, in fact, when Wild Bill McLean does his uh, summation before the jury, he as much as acknowledges that Norris is going gonna, is gonna to win this thing. And so it's sort of an interesting study. You know, I, I would love, there's a television show on called Bull, which he deals with juries. Uh, it's a CBS show on Monday nights. And I, I just wondered what a professional jury consultant would think of that, uh, that trial dynamic in that particular trial, because clearly a lawyer, uh, Norris's lawyers bested uh, the other team. And uh, they put on a tremendous defense and created tremendous sympathy, created reasonable doubt, and uh, they did so effectively. Do you think prosecutors would have gotten a conviction with a manslaughter charge? Yes, yes. And that's, that, that to me is the great pivotal point, that Norris, uh, he eventually was acquitted. We're not giving anything, no spoiler alert here. He eventually was acquitted. But the only charge they brought against him was first-degree murder. And McLean had said, it's that or nothing. They believed they had it. And um, if there would have been a lesser charge there, manslaughter, for instance, or even second-degree, like with the, uh, the trial that just recently happened up in Minnesota, you know, um, you know in reckless in disregard of life, but certainly manslaughter. Norris would have gone to jail for at least a period of time and would have, uh, would have had that conviction hanging over his head. I think it was a, cl a clear case of, of, of malpractice on the part of the prosecution lawyers. They, they were blinded by their hatred of this person, uh, whether it was justified in part or in all or not at all. They were blinded by it. And as a result, uh, they did not lawyer <laughs> quite very well at all. Uh, through this... Uh, or before this, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but Norris saw himself being persecuted uh, the same way Pontius Pilate persecuted Christ, right? Yeah, he was a, Norris was a paranoid person. I mean, that, that is an armchair psycho, psychological uh, statement that I make, but he saw conspiracies everywhere. Everybody was out to get him. Uh, it was him against the world, and he thought he was being persecuted. Uh, he never did anything wrong, so he 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 wound up landing on his feet. Um, he may have been a sociopath, uh, have sociopathic tendencies. I don't know, but uh, but certainly um, he was a paranoid person. Everybody was out to get him, and that was one of the reasons that that uh, he shot chips in the first place. So how does Norris handle this? Does he leave the courtroom triumphant after oh, the he verdict? Does. He, he does. He, 
he even wants a parade. They don't do a parade for him, but he's received back in Fort Worth uh, as a hero. Um, and um, he basically, even within weeks, uh, you know, produces a gun in the pulpit and waves it around, you know, don't come mess with me, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, he was quite uh, quite the sensationalist. Um, there, there is evidence that the shooting itself haunted him for the rest of his life uh, in, in a real way. Uh, he was never going to be the great, um, the great leader uh, of fundamentalism, but he created his own movement, a very effective movement. His church continued to grow. Um, and he created a, a movement of independent churches pulled out of a Southern Baptist convention. Uh, he created the movement out of which Jerry Falwell came, uh, back in the early fifties. And so, you know, not an insignificant thing. Uh, he got involved with politics even more. Um, he got involved with, um, with, uh, the issue of, uh, in, after the second world war, the issue of Israel becoming a, a nation. He even lobbied president Truman on, on that account and had correspondence with Truman on that account. Um, so he, he saw himself as a, as a, as a very important person. He saw himself larger than he really was. Uh, he was a, 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 a tireless and unapologetic self-promoter, um, but he continued to do that until he died in 1952. So how is Norris viewed by the Baptist Church today? Well, the movement called Independent Fundamental Baptist, IFB, they consider him a hero. I mean, you go to their various sites, you can always trace it back to Norris. He, Norris didn't take anything from anybody. If, if evil people came his way, he'd shoot them down. I mean, he's a total hero to them. And uh, the DNA of Norris is in that aggressive, independent, fundamental Baptist uh, mindset that, uh, that is very, very particular. Uh, but he's also a subject of interest to a lot of people. I mean, when I wrote Parent Danger, I found out later that one of the professors at Baylor University was, was, was recommending it to his students as a, as a good look at that part of the, of the history. There's a new book that's coming out that parallels J. Frank Norris with his contemporary George W. Truitt, who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas at the time, two diametrically different uh, men, but at the same time, giants in, in the day, they were fierce enemies, I might add, and that's part of what the book, I think, is about. Um, but the point being that um, that he is revered as a hero. And because he was acquitted, that's worn as a badge of honor. So, you you know, I mean, when that book came out, I was accused of slandering Norris, you know, because I talked about the Klan, because I talked about, you know, the fact that he should have been convicted of manslaughter. Um, but the bottom line is, uh, people forget those things. And for people who are of a strict mindset, particularly independent fundamental Baptists, Norris is one of, is a legendary hero to them, uh, to the rest of the, uh, the culture, religious or otherwise, he is uh, one of a, of a long list of people who was, uh, who fell from grace and uh, maybe shouldn't have been as high as he was when he fell in the first place. As an ordained minister yourself, I assume that you attended seminary school? Yes, I went to, I went to a Bible college in Springfield, Missouri that actually began in the early 50s as a, as a break off of a Norris, Norris's organization in Fort Worth. And the president of my college was Norris's assistant in Detroit, but eventually broke with Norris. Norris had a hard time keeping staff loyal to him, frankly, because he was so domineering and so authoritarian. Uh, and so, yes, that's my training. You know, I grew up around that. And my training um, came from that. I went more non-denominational as my career unfolded. I retired in 2019 after 40 years uh, pastoring a non-denominational church in Fairfax, Virginia. But, um, but yeah, uh, I, I was part of that. So yeah, that's how I know. I know I, and I was, I think, well poised to write this particular book because I knew, I knew the language, I knew the lingo and, uh, I, I, I knew the whole story. 
yes. It's very extensively researched. Well, thank you. Yes. So you have a website. Would you share that website with us? Sure. Yeah, people can find me at davidrstokes.com, at davidrstokes.com. And Apparent Dangers there, other books I've written and I blog there. My newest book is called JFK's Ghost. It's coming out in June. Lions Press is publishing it. It's about the making of Profiles and Courage, that famous book from John F. Kennedy back in the 50s. So, but davidrstokes.com is where they can find out all that stuff. Well, excellent. Thank you for coming back one more time. I'm glad to, Eric, and I, I listen to your podcast. I enjoy it. I mean, you, you cover stories not only that are fascinating, but you cover them so thoroughly. Uh, and I am a big fan. Oh, I appreciate that. Again, I have been speaking to David Stokes. He is the author of Apparent Danger, the pastor of America's first megachurch and the Texas murder trial of the decade in the 1920s. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.